Welcome to the Beacon Broadcast from Beacon Baptist Church in Burlington, North Carolina, featuring expositional Bible teaching by Pastor Greg Barkman. If you'd like to correspond with the Beacon Broadcast, or if you wish to support this radio ministry, write to The Beacon Broadcast, Post Office Box 159, Alamance, North Carolina, 27201, or find us on the web at beaconbaptist.com beaconbaptist.com The Beacon Broadcast is supported in part by the gifts of faithful listeners. Now with today's message from God's Word, here is Greg Barkman. We are continuing in our study in John chapter 15, still looking at this account, this metaphor of Christ and the branches. Christ the vine, Christians the branches. And how all of that works out is a very, very powerful and instructive passage. Jesus said, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit, and so forth. On it goes. And we have been looking at this over the last number of weeks on the half-hour Sunday edition of the Beacon Broadcast, and taking up different aspects, most recently, of the elements that Christ is emphasizing here. And today we come to yet one more. And we're going to talk about the place of God's Word in salvation. Now, that's a very instructive area and one that we need to give great attention to. It occurs to me that there are probably three items that are mentioned in the Bible as having an effect upon the souls of men in the work of salvation. Number one is the blood of Christ. We read in 1 John 1, 8, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. I think all of us recognize the, the place of the blood of Christ, and I think most of us realize that the term blood of Christ is actually a figure of speech to speak of the entire death of Christ. But there is great emphasis upon the blood, and though the blood is not of saving power in and of itself, in other words, that blood, if you took it in a in a basin, which of course is not possible to do, but if you could take it in the basin and somehow preserve it, some people think that it is actually literally preserved in heaven. I think that's probably a misunderstanding of Scripture, but I, I understand why some people think so, because it does, that thought does give great honor and attention to the value of Christ's blood and the power of Christ's blood. But if you could take that blood and somehow have it in a physical form, and would apply it to somebody? Well, how would you apply it? How would you apply the physical blood to the souls of men, to the heart of men, which of course doesn't speak of the physical heart, but the spiritual heart, the inward reality that we call the heart. 
and there would be no way to do so. So we can understand that talking about the blood of Christ is really a figure of speech to speak about the death of Christ upon the cross and what it accomplishes in the plan of God. It is the death of Christ that secures our salvation, or in the words of 1 John 1.8, because that's exactly what language the Bible uses, it is the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, that cleanses us from all sin. And I break now to welcome you to this Sunday, February 26th edition of the Beacon Broadcast. Thank you for listening and encouraging you to help us financially to be able to continue to teach God's Word on this station, thanking those of you who are already doing so. And so we're talking about the items that are specifically named in the Bible as having a saving effect upon the souls of men in in salvation. And the first one is the blood of Christ. And therefore, because of that language that is used in Scripture, the songwriter says, Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Would you, or evil, a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, 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 wonder-working power in the blood, in the blood of the Lamb. So, the blood of Jesus Christ is one of the agents mentioned in the Bible in regard to saving the souls of men. What is another one? Well, another one is the Spirit of God. We read, for example, in Christ's conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And he goes on to say, you must be born again, or you must be born from above. And that, again, is a way of saying you must be born of the work of the Spirit of God, who comes from above. God is in heaven. He comes to us. He's dispatched by the triune God, or we could think of it in terms of being dispatched by the Father. He comes into this world in order to affect the work of salvation. He is a an agent of salvation, the Spirit of God. So we've got the blood of Christ, we've got the Spirit of God, and surely nobody would argue against those two thus far. But the third one, and the one that we're going to find in our text for today, and the one that I think is probably mentioned more frequently than the other two, is the Word of God. The Word of God we read in the book of Hebrews is quick or alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And the Bible tells us that God uses his word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so the word of God is singled out as an agent in this work of salvation. And in Christ's discourse on the vine and the branches, he introduces two aspects of the use of God's word in the salvation of sinners. What are they? Number one, justification, and number two, sanctification. Justification of verse three, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken unto you. 
You are clean because of the word. You have been cleansed because of the word. You have been justified before the judgment bar of God in heaven because of the word. In other words, your sinful record has been erased. It has been made clean. It has been rendered null and void. All of those offenses, that tremendous list of offenses, which all of us have against Almighty God, has been removed by what? By the Word of God. Now you are clean, already clean, because of the Word which I've spoken to you. That, of course, harkens back to chapter 13 and that illustration, that living illustration that Jesus gave to his disciples with that foot-washing episode where Jesus was going around the circle of his disciples and taking the servant's place was washing his disciples' feet, a wonderful act of humility, to be sure, a wonderful example of service, to be sure. All of those things are involved. But don't miss the spiritual lesson And that foot washing actually refers to the second of the two elements that I'm going to introduce, the two aspects of the use of God's Word in salvation. And that foot washing speaks of the second of the two, which is sanctification. But the first one, justification, comes out clearly in that passage when Peter speaks up, as he so often did. Peter speaks up and said, oh, Lord, you'll never, never wash my feet thinking, of course, about the impropriety of the master becoming the servant, of the one who clearly had the highest place of honor and was superior to all of them in every way, performing the servant's task when those who were of lesser honor and lesser authority should have been performing that task instead. In other words, Peter's saying, I should be washing your feet, you shouldn't be washing my feet. And there certainly is truth in what Peter said, right? It's similar, I suppose, in some respects to what John the Baptist said when Jesus Christ came to John to be baptized by him. Now, John had been given authority to baptize, and he was busy baptizing people who acknowledged their sin and repented of it. It was a baptism of repentance. And so as people came to him acknowledging their sins, he baptized them with water, in water, I should say, to be more accurate. And then Jesus came and wanted to be baptized. Maybe wanted is too mild a term. Jesus came for the purpose of being baptized. Jesus came and instructed John to baptize him. And John John says, whoa, 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 whoa. It's one thing for me, John, to baptize sinners because God has given me that authority. He has made me a prophet. He's made me the forerunner of Messiah. He's given me the task of of doing this work of baptism, which goes along with the message of repentance that is necessary to prepare for the Savior, the Messiah, who is coming. And it's one thing for me to take that responsibility that God has given to me and to exercise it in the case of sinners, 
But when it comes to baptizing the sinless one, when it comes to baptizing the Messiah, when it comes to baptizing the one that clearly has greater authority than I do, who has a greater greater position than I have, I'm a mere man, a mere prophet, and here comes the one who is the God-man, the virgin-born son of God, the sinless son of God, and he wants to be baptized by me? As an indication, well, what does this baptism indicate? It indicates a repentance from sin. It indicates an acknowledgement of sinfulness. And so, you want to be baptized of me? Oh, no, 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 Jesus, even though I'm older than you are by six months in the physical realm. Oh, you came, you came way before me. I recognize your, your divine nature. I recognize your eternality. You are, you are way before me. And... I should be—I can't baptize you. You should be baptizing me. I'm the sinner. You're the sinless one. I'm the man. You're the God-man. And Jesus said, no, please go ahead and baptize me, because that enables us to fulfill all righteousness. And, of course, that gets into all kinds of questions and all kinds of very important answers— And the answer is to recognize that in that act of baptism, Jesus was not being baptized for himself. He wasn't confessing his own sins, personal sins. He wasn't acknowledging that he was a sinner, but it was an acknowledgement that in his work as Messiah, he was taking upon him the sins of others. He was, shall we say, a vicarious sinner. We, We talk about a vicarious substitute, that is one that stands in the place of another. And so he becomes the substitute, the sacrifice, to bear the punishment and guilt for sins in the place of those who actually are sinners, and he was not. And so we talk about a vicarious sacrifice, but in the case of John baptizing him, it is we might call it a case of a vicarious sinner, which, of course, is closely related to the term vicarious sacrifice because it all points to the same thing, his taking upon him the sins of others. But he is a vicarious sinner. He takes the sinner's place. He's not a sinner, but he becomes a substitute sinner in order to become a substitute sacrifice. And thus, it is appropriate for him to be baptized. Thus, it behooves us to fulfill all righteousness, to carry this out, Jesus says to John, and thus was baptized. And all of this is very instructive, but now we move forward into John chapter 15, and Jesus makes reference to this cleansing of justification in verse 3. You are already clean, justified, cleansed, remembering back to chapter 13. I need to finish the the account there, which many of you, most of you, I trust probably know, but not everybody. I can't take that for granted. In which Peter said, oh, no, Lord, don't wash my feet. That'll never be. I'll never allow you to act as a servant to wash my feet when I recognize that it ought to be the other way around. I should have 
volunteered to wash your feet, but none of the apostles was willing to take the servant's place. I think all of them would have been happy to take the servant's place to wash Jesus' feet, but to wash the feet of the other apostles, that would be an, what would it say? It would be a statement that they were lower in rank than the other apostles. And, of course, we know that the twelve apostles often debated and argued among, among themselves as to who was the greatest. Nobody was making a case for who was the least. Nobody was saying, think of me as being less than the rest of you, lower than the rest of you. But who's going to be greatest? Who is greatest and who's going to be greatest? Showing their immaturity, showing their carnality, showing their thought patterns, which are embarrassingly similar to ones that we have had, hopefully no longer have, by the work of sanctification in our lives. And so Peter said, don't do that. Jesus, don't wash my feet. And Jesus said, if you don't let me wash your feet, you can have no part with me. This foot washing, which indicates sanctification, is not optional. It is necessary. If I can't wash your feet, this symbol of sanctification, the work of sanctification in your life, then you have no part with me. If, I, if, I'm not, if you don't allow me to sanctify you, if you don't cooperate with, with my sanctifying you, then you have no part in salvation. You haven't really been involved in the work of justification. And when Jesus said that, Peter said, oh, well, then in that case, if, that's, if it's that important, don't just wash my feet, wash my hand, wash me all over. If, if that's how important it is, don't just limit it to my feet, but give me a whole bath. And Jesus said, no, you've already been bathed, and that only occurs once, but you need to be you need to be, uh, what should we say? You need to be <clears throat> tidied up. <laughs> it's the only word that comes to my mind right now. It's all there in the il- illustration. The foot washing was what was done when people came in after walking out on the dusty streets. They they didn't need a whole bath. They, they'd already bathed themselves. But this new dust, this new defilement, clung to their sandal-clad feet. And so they just needed to wash their feet to be clean because the bath had already taken care of the major cleansing, but the foot washing was necessary to take care of the minor cleansing. The bath was a, was a main event, and we can see in, in what it pictured of justification, it's a one-time event, but the foot washing is an ongoing event. You have to do that daily. You have to do that more than once a day if you're out walking around in the streets. Every time you come in, you need to have your feet washed. Speaking of sanctification, but that first bathing is justification. And Jesus said, You are already clean. The same thing he said back in chapter 13. I don't need to give you a whole bath because that's already been done. You are already clean. But here's the point of my lesson today. 
How are you clean? Because of the word which I have spoken unto you. The power of the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It is the washing of the water of the word that brings about justification. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the word. Power in the word. Would you or evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the word. There's power, 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 power. Wonder-working power in the word of the Lamb. Why is it, therefore, that so many Christians devalue the Word, that is, the Bible. It's not that we don't think it's important, but not of such supreme importance. When it comes to the work of evangelism, and we're talking about the place of God's Word and the work of salvation, there are far too many Christians that, that think the real power, the real Effect the thing that makes the real difference in whether people become Christians or not has more to do with other things than the Word of God. That's so common. I remember talking to a young preacher a number of years ago now who actually had, when he was preparing for ministry, had spent a summer doing internship work with a particular evangelistic effort that was, in many ways, would have, would have passed the test of what we're looking for. It was carried out by a local church, sponsored by a local church, but, it was, but he said he was so disappointed because the messages that they would gather a group of people in a park or something like that by getting their attention by, by use of music and so forth, and then when people gathered together, he said someone would preach, and then after preaching, they would usher an altar call, an invitation, as they would call it, for people to respond and to indicate their response by the raising of a hand and coming forward and so forth. And then they would lead them to pray and make a decision for Christ. But he said the most disappointing thing to him in all of this, and I would have pointed out several things that would have disappointed me in all of this, but the most disappointing thing to him in all of this was that in the messages which he heard while he was involved in this work, there was almost no gospel. It really wasn't a, a preaching of the Word. It really wasn't a message that, that examined and explained and proclaimed the meaning of God's Word. It was instead a message that made only glancing reference to the Word of God and was based almost entirely upon illustrations and stories and appeals to emotions, and then on the basis of that, hopefully having touched people's emotions in this way, there was this appeal to respond now to this message and be saved. Receive Christ, pray the prayer, and be saved. Well, where's the Word? Where's the power of the Word in all of that? Well, this young preacher recognized that the Word was missing in all of that. It was acknowledged briefly. It was sort of a tip of the hat to the Word of God, but that wasn't the real core. The, the real success of this operation depended upon the skillfulness of the preacher in telling these stories and in 
stirring people's emotions. And then, if that was successful, to lead them to a decision upon which, if they made that decision, if they prayed that prayer, they would be told, you have now been saved. They would be pronounced a child of God without any power of the word represented in any meaningful way in this whole process of evangelism and without any evidence that they had actually been regenerated by the work of the Spirit of God. Disappointing. Jesus didn't say, now you are clean because of the stories that I have told unto you. Now you are clean because of the emotions that I have stirred within you. He said in John 15, 3, you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken unto you. The power of the word. And so we see, first of all, the power of the word in what I've called justification, but maybe I should back up even one step from justification and say the power of the word in regeneration. It is the Spirit of God who takes the word of God and regenerates souls. And then those regenerated souls, believing in Christ, are justified. They're pronounced just before God. And so God's word is the key to regeneration. God's word is the key to justification but also to sanctification, as we drop down to verse 7, where Jesus says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. And that's speaking about the work of sanctification. The, the word of God which brought about regeneration, or was a tool in the hands of the Holy Spirit to bring about God-created God-empowered regeneration, that change of heart, that change of life, that, that quickening power of the, the sword of the Spirit that brings about regeneration, which leads to justification, one being declared just forever before the judgment bar of God, but it's never alone. There's always the work of sanctification, which follows it, which accompanies it, and now the Spirit of God who formerly was outside this person and came within them and created this new life, who brought about this great work of the new birth, this, this, this regeneration leading to justification. Now that same Holy Spirit abides within them and causes the Word of God to abide within them. And we need the intake of God's Word even as the physical body needs the intake of food on a regular basis or it will die, so the, the regenerated spirit of man needs the regular intake of God's Word in order to sustain that life which God has given. You, said, you say, does that mean you can starve out the life that God has given? No, but it means you, you can certainly weaken it. You can't starve it out completely. The, the Scripture is clear about that. But what you can do is neglect to give it its full place, to ne neglect to give it the honor that the Bible gives to it, ne neglect to give it the power that God imparts to it, to neglect to understand the importance of the Word abiding in you. But that's the sanctifying work of the Word. And so, 
when it comes to salvation, the Word of God is instrumental at the beginning in regeneration and justification, and then the Word of God is instrumental and necessary in the middle, which is sanctification, and will eventually, when that sanctifying work is completed upon our entrance into glory in the presence of our Savior, will then be entirely and fully sanctified. And so, some of the aspects of these two verses, the cleansing power of the Word and the sanctifying power of the Word, flow together and and sometimes overlap to some extent. As we continue our examination of the vine branch analogy, we will try to view them separately, but We'll have to take that up on next week's broadcast, won't we? And so please join me then. Until then, this is Greg Barkman saying good day. May God give you his eternal peace.